I watch film, but I'd be honest, I mean, when I first started watching film, I was just watching the game. Hello everybody, welcome to the UK Packers podcast. As usual, I'm your host at NFL on Twitter and of course follow the group at UK Packers. And for the final podcast, I'm all on me lonesome. So look, what I'm going to do is, is uh, I'm going to rub my face, which is going to sound really annoying. Um, I'm going to do one last uh, history podcast on my own. And it's late. Jesus Christ, it's late. I don't know why. I was working crazy hours today. Um, working from home as well. Um, remoting into the office I know what you're thinking right now who cares Steve so and then I got to sort of thinking uh, you know what can I what type of podcast can I put out well I go into the news but I kind of want to do that about Rhino when he's back uh, from Spain so what I decided to do was is I was looking at the retired numbers and a lot of these dudes we know about but there's one guy this sort of stands out to me that I didn't really know anything about so what I wanted to do was is kind of research him myself anyway and then bring what I find to you, okay? So, I went sort of pawn around for sources, and I had sort of a little bare bones thing. This was going to be like a 10-minute you know, podcast. Maybe it still will be, I don't know. Maybe I'll blaze through because it's super late here. Um, so, I fleshed it out a bit and, you know, got his career stats. There wasn't a whole lot about his upbringing. And then I found a brilliant article that went into how he was raised and stuff from encyclopedia.com. So, I'm going to bring you that sort of piece as well. I thought the stuff was really interesting. Some stuff about this guy I don't understand uh, and I've grown to really like Tony Anthony Robert Canadeo uh, over all this time so the six jerseys retired by the Packers the first one was Don Hudson in 1951 Tony Canadeo followed in 1952 so the minute Tony Canadeo retired they retired his jersey which is interesting because even Don Hudson as ridiculously legendary as he was he retired in 1945 and um, from the Packers and they retired his jersey then six years later so Tony Canadeo kind of stood out to me for that regard because they retired it straight away which I found weird uh, so Bart Starr retired his in 1973 Ray Nitschke 1983 Reggie White 2007 and of course Brett Favre um, in 2015 so last year when we were over for the Dallas game we saw his name being put up onto the stadium because it doesn't get put up the minute they're retired, you know, it tends to take a bit of time to get it up there. So, like, Hudson, yeah, we know. Bart Starr, of course. Ray Nitschke, obviously. Reggie White, who doesn't? And Brett Favre, Jesus, under a rock. So, Tony Canadeo was the only one to me that kind of stood out to, like, I don't really know that much about him. And every time he used to come up and I go, well, of course, but Tony Canadeo. But, you know, I didn't really know much about him. So, I said, screw it. I'm going to go in and look at it. So, let me get stuck in. This guy, I was so hoping he had an Irish background. I really was, because the more I read about him... And it, do you know what? The more I read about this guy, the more of kind of a walk and contradiction he was. Because an awful lot of people keep... All the sources that I'm reading anyway were saying that he was average. And he was just hardworking. I'm going to read out a quote later from the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Uh, from his page on there, where they say, you know, what he did and what he was. And his stats. And I'm going to try not bore you with stats. I'll mention them sort of as we go along. But look, what I'm trying to do is... And I've done a dumper load of errors since I got home from work. Uh, played with the kid. A little bit. He's gassed now. He's really running. Anyway. Uh, so I've done errors and errors on this thing. Trying to put some sort of cohesive thing. Because everything I give you stats. And they give you a sort of, you know, a tagline or two. And I tried to get a real feeling of exactly who this dude was. And the era that he was playing in. So yeah, I'll give you some stats. But I'm not going to get too deep into it, right? 
So, and I'm not going to... This isn't off Wikipedia either. I stay completely away from Wikipedia when I'm doing stuff. Uh, but it's going to sound like a Wikipedia article because they do their stuff in chronological order. So I'm kind of going to bounce around a bit because, let's face it, I'm a scatological Irishman, right? It's a scatty brain, leprechaun, hyperactive. So I'm going to try put a cohesive thing together. So born the 5th of May, 1919, in Chicago, of all places. And that kind of gets interesting from where he bounces around. So his dad was also called Anthony Canadeo. He was Anthony Robert Canadeo, and he has he ended up having a son later in life called Robert as well. That's where I got it from. And I knew that his name obviously was Canadeo. He was going to be Italian-American, but then I was thinking, oh, I hope the mammy is like, you know, Bridget Bernadette O'Brien from Ireland. She wasn't. She, her name was Catherine Marinello. And again, hoping he was Irish, but totally not. So he grew up on the intersection of uh, Grand and Western Avenues in Chicago, which I don't know if there's any Italian-Americans listening, if there's any uh, Chi-Town Americans listening, if that's a super still Italian place, don't know. But apparently that was the quintessential Italian-American place. His dad was a mechanic on streetcars in the, for the Chicago Surface Line, according to encyclopedia.com. And they were a normal family, normal Italian-American family. Uh, they were a one-income household. His mom was a stay-at-home mom. So she stayed at home, looked after him and his three brothers, and he had one sister as well. So they were saving and decided to move when he was six years of age, headed off to Western Chicago. So like any other kid back in the day, he used to play streetball. Now, an awful lot of what I see his narrative coming up online of who he was influenced by, it was his brother called Savior, and they call him Savvy, which is awesome because I'm going to have another kid if it's a boy. I'm, I'm, you know what I mean? I'm looking for names. I'm looking to audition names. So Savvy... Could I get away with him? Probably not. Probably not in Ireland. But anyway, I digress. So Savvy convinced them to enroll in football in high school and said, you know, give it a give it a bash. So it, this is where kind of you'll see with Tony Canadeo, his stats are kind of crazy, right? So he was kind of a jack of all trades throughout his entire career. So high school, college, and the pros. They kind of got him to do everything. Now, this again, like myself and Ryan were talking about on the history podcast. Like, you're on offense, you're on defense, you're expected to do a bunch of things. Um, and especially in Green Bay, for some reason, they had a history of getting a player in as one thing and then converting them into something different. And nowadays in the NFL, you'll find that players will come in at one thing and then transition. So, you know, Charles Woodson did it famously. So they were kind of doing it back then as well. So you'll see that Tony, Tony Canadeo, geez, it's late. Tony Canadeo comes in as one thing and sort of transitions throughout his career. And I'm going to try to give you sort of a feeling of that, but I'll get past the him growing up stuff into his career now. So he got him to enroll in this small high school called Steinmetz High School. So they were tiny, um, but they're really punching above their weight in high school. And he sort of helped towards that. So... The narrative that I see with Tony Canadeo is is that on one side of an article it'll say he did really well, he was great, he was their standout player, he was a star, and he was in the all-time team of X thing, and then they'll say, but he wasn't great and he was kind of so-so, you know, wasn't fast, wasn't elusive, he was okay, wasn't highly touted, and then on the other side it'll say, but he was up there with the Heisman winner, you know, so it's weird, so I'm going to try convey what I can through his stats as opposed to listening to the sources so they kind of trip over themselves like one sentence after the other but anyway so he's pretty handy in high school bit of a jack of all trades um, he used to throw the ball around and they made it to the playoffs in the Catholic League Championships I know who doesn't know that right the Catholic League Championships obviously a massive league at the time 
Jesus. So they got into the playoffs, but they ended up getting clobbered. But the next game that they would have went on to in the playoffs, they would have ended up playing in Soldier Field. Now, bear in mind, this guy's from Chicago, so he's playing in the Catholic League Championships in Chi-Town. And that would be, you know, the biggest thing you can go to, Soldier Field. Now, he's going to be going and waxing the Bears when he started playing for the Packers. So he wasn't ready just yet, obviously, to get into Soldier Field at the time. So, again, Savvy comes back into it. So, Savvy, which is Tony's brother, gets him a job in Green Bay. So, you'll find that most of Tony's career now, so he's born in Chicago, gets a job in Green Bay. His brother has a large influence in Wisconsin as well. So, his brother at the time was a pretty good welterweight boxer in St. Norbert's College, which you'll recognize the name, in the Pierre, Wisconsin. And he got a, Tony a job in Green Bay. And Tony was kind of faffing around, didn't know what he wanted to do. Now, if the name St. Norbert's College piques your interest, it's because the Packers have, they practice in St. Norbert's. And according to the St. Norbert's or the education website, the Packers have the longest standing contractual continual use of that place as kind of like a, a little training camp. So in 2016, it was their 59th consecutive year using it which is the longest run for an nfl team but if you're gonna get excited and go oh well that's back in tony's time it wasn't because they only started that in 1958 uh, he retired in 1952 but a nice little sort of tidbit to know that his brother was boxing away as a welterweight in saint norbert's in the pierre and you know when his brother was to retire from the nfl a couple of years later that's when the packers go in and they get that as their their practice place and go on but anyway i digress so he got him the job in green bay savvy did he was kind of always from what it seems like looking after him and convincing him to do stuff right and that's where when he was in green bay tony met a guy called tiny cahoon now if you if you know the history podcast some of these names come up and tony cahoon was an ex-packer and he was also a high school coach. And his best mate was a head coach in Gonzago University. And so he said to Tony, like, why don't you go up and play for Gonzago? It's a small school. There's only a thousand people. Go up there and play for my buddy who's the head coach. And he'll help you out. So according to encyclopedia.com, they have a, quote, a nice quote there from Tony Canadeo. And he says that him and five mates, uh, they went... now. Uh, Gonzago University is in Washington so it's ages away so they went and bought themselves a 1927 Packard touring car and he got five dudes they bundled into this car and it said it took them a week and six flat tires to get there so he went up to Gonzago and that's where he had his college career um, so in Gonzago University he was known as the grey ghost of Gonzago because even when he was in college his hair started to go a bit grey so a bit, a bit of a silver fox as they call him um, now again, like all the articles I'm reading, they're saying he wasn't highly touted in college. But then I read through some of his stats and see all the teams and all teams that he was voted onto, and I'm thinking, Jesus, this guy seems fairly handy. Like I've no idea why he wasn't highly touted coming out of college. Um, I'll get to his college stats, just run through some uh, quick stuff, sort of notable stuff. And he was only drafted ninth round to Green Bay, which was 77th overall, which seems quite low for the ninth round in 1941. Um. And again, like the, the ninth round, and I'm going to read his college stuff now and you'll see. Now, one article said that he was called the Grey Ghost, obviously because his hair was going grey, but also his spooky running style. I don't know what that means. I've never heard, I've never switched on a paranormal activity program and seen a ghost doing jukes and, you know, going over for touchdowns. Like, that's never happened. I've seen them go boo and, like, touch people, but I've never seen them. I've never seen a ghost juke you in a basement of some place. But anyway... Um, 
don't know what it means. So he goes to college, he plays quarterback, he plays running back, he plays kick returner, punt returner. Um, so he was super handy. And one of the highlights of his freshman year was that he returned the kickoff for 90 yards for a touchdown, which is fairly handy and goes to show that they were, you know, they were still kicking fairly long back then to kick to the 10 yard line. He returns it. Um, other college highlights was he returned the kickoff then for 102 yards, 105 yards, I think in his second or third year. He was voted to the All-Pacific Coast Conference team. I know, big deal, right? Uh, he bet Oregon when he was playing for this tiny thousand-person college. And they then went to the Rose Bowl after. But he bet them 12-7. He played quarterback and he was throwing all over them. He had pretty good stats. I'm not going to go into them because who cares? Um, in 1940, he was named to the Associated Press Little All-America First Team. Don't know if that's a thing. Uh, then was voted to the All-Pacific Coast Team. Uh, on the, I think it's his final year and he stacked up pretty well apparently uh, with Tom Harmon who won the Heisman Trophy the year before he went and got drafted by Green Bay so this is the contradiction I'm talking about right in the same article it says he wasn't highly touted he was a big gag and then it says but he stacked up pretty well stat wise to the guy who won the Heisman Trophy so it's a contradiction in terms he's seen as a bit of a legend you look at his numbers sometimes they aren't great and then all of a sudden he's up there as one of the best ever. So anyway, gets drafted. Ninth round goes to Green Bay, 77th overall. And one thing that I noticed, um, and I read it in the articles as well, it says that he was undersized as a pro. So depending on you know what you read, he was either five foot ten or five foot eleven. I think the official stats is five foot eleven, and he was 190 pounds, is what they say. Now I think he was 190 pounds later in his career. He kind of filled out after he went. So his career was broken down like this, right? So he started off and played. Uh, well he played 11 years for the Packers but he played 1941 to 1944 and those teams were absolute dynamite then he went off to the war and then when he came back he played from 1946 to 1952 so from 1941 to 1944 I think he played about 170 pounds don't know what it is in stone what's a stone 14 pounds so he's about whatever I'm not going to get into it because I'm supposed to be an accountant I'm not going to do off the cuff maths because this recorded forever so he started off light and undersized and he did seem undersized right because I was in the pro football hall of fame the Packers pro football hall of fame falling over myself again in Green Bay and we go over for week one uh, to watch the Seahawks game we've got another tour of that and apparently they're doing guided tours but when I went over I was just roaming around and I was looking at one of his jerseys and it looked really small now I don't know whether because there were kind of cotton jerseys you know there was kind of it was like wearing a jumper at that stage and the padding wasn't as big so the jerseys tended to be quite small but looking at it it looked like it had fit me and I'm not going to crank out my height uh, but I'm not 5'11 I wish um, so it seemed small it seemed like it had fit me so even I was looking at it going Jesus you know this guy's in, got his retired jersey retired and he seems quite short to me but and then I was thinking, well, back in the day, and I think it's on the Packers Life documentary, I say his jersey looks quite small, but I suppose back in the day they were all a bit smaller. So 5'11", 190 pounds later in his career. Again, he was used kind of as a jack of all trades for Green Bay. He played offense as a quarterback, wide receiver, running back, and a punt and kickoff returner. And then he played on defense as a cornerback. So, as I said, played 11 years, 1941 to 1944. They were great. 1944, he was the uh, NFL champion. Of course, this was before it was called a Super Bowl. Then he played 1946 to 1952 and went into the army uh, during World War II. And during World War II, I found out, because I was trying to look, 
he was an anti-aircraft soldier so he's in the anti-aircraft unit right apologies to all the military men out there but i come from a military family but it's the irish military so i don't believe we have any anti-aircraft units maybe they do i don't know i'm not gonna get into it anyway so his stats so he had 8,667 multi-purpose yards. So as the Pro Football Hall of Fame puts it, he accounted for almost 75 yards in every game and he played 116 games. So from what I gleaned from all of the websites, and I'm not reading off anybody else's website, I'm trying to add the stuff. And I found a, a numerical error on Packers.com. So I was delighted with myself because it was adding and I was like, that doesn't make sense. But then I saw that it was a bit of a typo, right? So... The most games that they played back then in a season was 12. So it's not like the 16 games now. So when I say some of these stats, bear in mind, he's four less games, four fewer games. It's probably better. Uh, so he had 12 games a season instead of 16. So from 1941 to 1944, Green Bay were dominant. So from 1946 to 1952, Tony Canadeo shone on all those teams, but the teams sucked. So let me just bring up, uh, you know, the years and how they did. So 1941, uh, they were 10-1. Again, so one game is obviously missing there. Uh, 1942, they were 8-2-1. 1943, 7-2-1. 1944, 8-2-0. And then from 1945 downwards, because I think the teams were decimated with people going off to the war and all the rest throughout these sort of intermittent years. Obviously from 1939 to 1945, but players were coming in and out. So from 1944 onwards, they were useless. So... They won eight games in 44, six games in 45, six games in 46, six games in 47. Then it dips to three games, two games, three games, three games. And again, he retires with a six and six team. So they kind of declined. But again, he was known to shine on those teams. So after he came back from the war, he was predominantly a running back. Now, what I love about this is, is that in 1943, He's the number one passer. I'm kind of going to fall over myself here because I've got all this stuff kind of written down hiddly piddly. But he came back um, in, this is what I like, and I'll sort of jump back in time. 1944, he only plays three games, right? And he's actually in the army at that stage, but he gets dishonorably discharged because he has to come home for the birth of his son. So what does he do? Like a typical man, can't stay at home, has to piss off and do something else. So goes up to Green Bay, signs a contract. And I've read through some sort of news article clips about like, they go, oh, the veteran running back is back. So he comes over to Green Bay and the first thing he does, now he would have played under Curly Lambeau uh, as the head coach all the way up to 1949. And then it switches to the Gene Rosani era from 1950 to 52. And that's when they did pretty crap. Now the last couple of years, so uh, 48, 49, they were doing terrible under Curly Lambeau. They only won three games of 48, two games of 49. And I'm repeating myself, uh, but it's not easy to listen to when someone just starts throwing winning games at you. So 1944 comes back under... Um, Curly Lambeau and he plays three games because he's only back uh, because they've he's been dishonorably discharged and then so he, you know three games isn't a whole lot as a thing but anyway the year before that 1943 he becomes the number one passer so he was an understudy when he signed and they kind of were trying to use him as kind of a quarterback and then he was a running back and then he was kick return and punt return and I'm going to try to get into some of the stats about it and Cecil Isbell was the quarterback at that time a bit of a legend uh, but he went and retired prematurely and they asked Cecil Isbell at the time like what you know why did you leave early you know and he said what he did was he quit to become the coach for the Purdue Boilermakers at the time and it was a bit of a shock move and they said you know you're still in your prime you're still doing really well why did you leave and he said he you know he in La in Green Bay he saw Curly Lambeau going around the locker room and telling dudes like Arnie Herber 
that they were no longer needed and he always swore that that had never happened to him and he was going to quit before that happened to him so uh, Cecil Isbell left and then Canadeo took over quarterback duties and was the number one passer in Green Bay for the Packers in 1943 he was named to the NFL all-pro team that year in 1943 and he was voted again in 1949 and i'll get on to why in 1949 because it was pretty spectacular um so is there anything else i need to say to you yeah so he was used as a quarterback behind cc lispel so 1951 it was his sort of heavy receiving year he, and again i say heavy he was used for 22 receptions for 226 yards average 10.3 yards per catch uh he didn't have any passes then really after 1948 he had uh, one pass in 1952, but it didn't go anywhere. It fell short, so it was uncompleted. Had a quarterback rating of zero in that year. So 1944, as I said, dishonorably discharged for the birth of the son. Decides to piss off and throw, you know, do some running back, do some passes. So in 1949, which was the other year that he became an all-team, an all-NFL team uh, selection, he rushed for over a thousand yards. So he was only the third player in NFL history at that stage to do it. Now, all these websites and all the articles that had who it was, that he was the third player, they all just sort of repeat themselves. They didn't actually go into who the first two was, so I had to go fishing for it. So he averaged 5.1 yards per attempt, and he got only four touchdowns, which is weird because he got over 1,000 yards. And again, that's when he was named to the All-NFL team. So he was the third player in NFL history at that stage to do it. So it was a pretty big feat. So up to that point, the number one person to do it was a guy called Beady Feathers, who actually played for the Bears and went and played for the Packers at one stage. And he did it in 1934. So he did it 15 years earlier. So it'll go to show you how difficult it was to do at that stage, because remember, it was only a 12-game season. So Beady Feathers did it, and he did it in his rookie season as well, which is mental. And he did it for the Bears, so he probably notched up a dumper load of those yards on the Packers. His season average Beady Feathers was 8.44 yards per carry which is still an nfl record to this day it's, it's crazy stats the second person to do it was steve van burren and he played for the eagles and the eagles were pretty dominant at the time so he ran for a thousand and eight yards uh back in i don't know when it was i didn't even write it down i think it was uh it was early 1940s anyway so he ran for 1,008 yards and then he ran for 1,049, I think, or 1,200 something, something mental anyway, in 1949, which is the same year that Tony Canadeo did it. Now, to, to put into perspective of what Steve Van Buren was like, is the Eagles have also retired his jersey number. He's still the Eagles franchise leader in rushing and he's the only player at that stage um, to run for multiple thousand yard seasons and he also rushed for more than 10 touchdowns in one season and he did that three times so this guy was pretty ridiculous but anyway away from all those dudes back to tony canadeo so tony canadeo in his in his time with the packers returned punts and kickoffs pretty much in his entire career so i was kind of looking at you know when he did what there was some years where they didn't get him to return any kickoffs and he but in that year he returned punts and then vice versa so when he wasn't returning punts he was returning kickoffs but throughout his entire career no matter how old he got they put him on that duty so quick rush down through his stats so an offense for rushing 4197 yards on 1025 attempts that was 4.1 yards per attempt in his career scored 26 rushing touchdowns they also used him as a receiver, so 579 yards, uh, 69 receptions, an average of 8.3 yards per reception, five touchdowns. 
passing 1,642 yards and passing now he's not going to win any awards for this he definitely didn't make uh, this is why I mentioned them in passing when me and Ryan were doing our all Packers team and we're on quarterbacks because I just found it interesting that he's known for being a running back but also passed but wait here get a lot of this uh, 16 touchdowns that's okay 20 interceptions not great when your interceptions outweigh your touchdowns he's no Aaron Rodgers his completion percentage 39.2% not great quarterback rating of 49.1 again not great uh, 6.13 yards per attempt yeah not going to be uh, winning any awards so on punting then 45 punts uh, in 1941 to 1948 doesn't punt after that 1669 yards so a 37.1 yard per punt which i think in today i think actually when you look at the the packers punters now they're up around the late 30s early 40s in punting and all this directional punting stuff so he wasn't doing too bad special teams then uh punt returns he returned 46 for 513 yards that's 11.2 yards average for a punt return it's okay uh kickoff returns 75 of them for 1736 yards which is a 23.1 yards average and then he played on defense he was a cornerback and he got nine interceptions which is pretty handy so he played defense up to 1948 played till 1952 and they obviously didn't need him thereafter because he didn't do any of that after it so all in all this guy was a bit of a legend bit of a jack of all trades uh the pro football hall of fame if i can find the quote here uh says that i can't find it now but they were saying that you know he was um an all-round kind of guy you know he wasn't known for his speed wasn't known for his elusiveness but was sort of dependable and consistent so after he retired he stayed around green bay and he was kind of known as a gentleman about uh, everyone loved him he did a lot for the community um he broadcast packers games for uh, wbay or wbay tv not sure how you're supposed to say it so according then to encyclopedia.com and a great article by jim campbell he says that um, in 1972, he needed a kidney transplant and his son Robert went and gave him and donated that kidney. And Robert himself was actually a Vietnam vet. So here was his dad going away, uh, anti-aircraft unit in World War II. And then his son Robert was a decorated Vietnam vet and of course steps up to the plate for his dad and gives him a kidney in 1972. So unfortunately and it was quite late actually when you look at all the stuff that he was doing way back when and the fact that he was playing for the Packers in the 40s and he only died in 2003 at the age of 84 in St. Mary's Hospital in Green Bay he's buried in Allo's Catholic Cemetery in Green Bay and I think he just fell into consciousness and passed away so in 2003 the Packers on the back of their helmets like you see an awful lot around the league they had a little black football and a number three in it and that was to commemorate this guy so as i said like his his number was retired straight away in 1952 it was the second jersey to be retired and don hudson's was the first in 1951 so that's tony canadeo in a nutshell so again first half of his career uh, he was a bit lighter uh, on a massive dominating team 1944 they won the championship against the new york giants green bay won 14 to 7 he goes away to the army uh, he comes back like a cheeky whore and plays three games while he's is on leave for his son's birth then goes back and plays for the packers but the team are pretty crap and they disintegrate then by the time he leaves He's up there with some of the dudes in the fact of with his rushing yards breaks a thousand yards which was incredible um and then retires uh, jersey retired straight away 
and he sort of stays about Green Bay and passes away then. So all in all, Jack of all trades seems like a great guy. Obviously made a massive impact on the Packers, but it's weird that he made such an impact back then. He was known for such a long time. And nowadays, if you ask anybody, they know the Bart Stars, they know the Don Hudsons, you know, obviously they know Reggie White and, and Brett Favre, but they don't, you know, not a lot said about Tony Canadeo. And when you, I know we put it up on our Instagram account, which is at UK Packers on Instagram. And we put up, you know, if you're a true diehard, do you know these players? And a lot of them struggled on Tony Canadeo. And uh, now it's easy if you know his number. But anyway, so supplemental reading. So um, I, if you want to go pop along and look at Packers.com, they don't go into the detail that I did. Uh, Encyclopedia.com is a great article by Jim Campbell. There's a lot of detail in that. An awful lot of the stuff in his background that I got for this uh, podcast. Uh, that's great and in that article it gives you a supplemental reading as well so there's a bi- uh, biography on tony canadeo called in search of a hero the life and times of tony canadeo and that's by david zimmerman uh it says that his life and career discussed in chuck johnson the greatest packers of them all and that's from 1968 and donald or smith's nfl pro football hall of fame all-time greats which was published in 1988 so you're probably listening to the podcast because like me, uh, you're whizzing about looking after kids and dogs and family members and sick relatives and work and you're on a train, you've got a long commute. I know it's, you know, coming out of the recession, all this type of stuff. So hopefully you found that entertaining and if you're the reading type, pop along and take a look at those articles. This is the last kind of, well, we'll do more uh, ad hoc history podcasts if you like them um, because the last one that was on Lambeau Field was heavily based on Packers.com because that had all the best info and it was, geez, it took hours to get through. So myself and Ryan are going to be back on the Sunday night if you're in America. Hopefully I can edit and get it up by then into Monday morning. But if you're a Paddy Packer like me uh, or you're a Tommy Packer like Rhino or you're in Scotland or wherever you are, you can listen to it and we'll accompany you on the train, in the car on Monday morning. So maybe some housekeeping. We're our Irish meetup. We're still trying to get people in for that and gearing up for that. The tickets are on sale. Just go to our website, ukpackers.co.uk. Sign up for that and come over to Ireland. If you're an American, Jesus, we'd love to have you over. But anyway, that's Tony Canadeo in a nutshell. Hope you enjoyed it. I'll talk to you with Rhino on Sunday night or Monday morning. It's goodbye from at Steve the NFL, at UK Packers, ukpackers.co.uk. See you.